The frozen cavern. I was there again. I stood on the western shore looking out over the Arctic cold sea. Sheets of thick ice layered the polished walls of the cave as a sharp wind cut the air and dropped the temperature to bone-shattering cold. Ancient ruins from a long-forgotten empire lay strewn over the landscape along with broken tablets and bone fragments bleached by the Arctic wind. Against the shore, the ocean pounded away with angry surf and strong riptides. Boulders were thrown against the beach as the waves drove into one another with hatred, and long, silver, flesh-eating fish swam through the undercurrents in search of prey. This was the frozen cavern, a place of arctic cold desolation in a region so alien, no map showed it. I had been here before, against my will. I would return to it again, over and over. Whenever I was high, my spirit would leave my body and journey to this strange destination. Inside the frozen cavern was the horror. The horror was my personal term for what others would call the human museum. From the point where I stood on the western shore, were thousands of people all imprisoned. Every individual was frozen in a ten-foot-high capsule made from polished crystal. The row of captives extended from my position, down the length of the shoreline, all the way to the horizon. Every race, every culture, and every era were represented. There were women, men, and children. They all wore different clothes, carried different tools, and came from every land the human race had ever settled. All civilizations and all empires were represented. Nearest to me stood the Egyptian princess. She was dark, very beautiful, and very tall. Her long black hair was braided in a strange fashion. She wore long white robes and around her slender neck was an amulet depicting a gold serpent holding a diamond in its fangs. The woman had been a high priestess in a cult that worshipped Anubis, death, and the dark rivers that divided the underworld from the living. She had been taken from Egypt 4,000 years ago and imprisoned here in the frozen cave. For all eternity, a permanent display to anyone unfortunate enough to pass through this cursed place. Then, my dream would end. I would travel back over the rivers of music and the cities of beautiful light to return to my own physical realm. Madeline, New Mexico. I was home. As usual, I had passed out in the city park on North 1st Street. I'd gone to a party the night before, and had taken too much arctic tundra. Now I was paying for it. The superamphetamine was slowly killing me, but I didn't really care. Slowly, I opened my eyes. A headache pounded through my skull like a jackhammer. My spine was stiff like cardboard, my arms were numb, I couldn't feel my legs. My vision showed the world in six images. My throat was dry as paper, and my heartbeat was very slow. My dark business suit was shredded, my dark necktie torn, and my shoes were ripped apart. 
my wallet, state identification card corporate security badge, and my $1,400 German wristwatch were gone. It was late afternoon. I was laid out under a maple tree. The day was clear and cold. High above, a jetliner flew west, leaving behind a long white concrete. A meadowlark chirped away in the distance. A 54 Buick went down the street, and far away I heard a high school marching band. For the time being, I was safe from the frozen cavern. Then I noticed Juanita Tulkek, my secretary. She was kneeling down beside me. Sadly, she said, white people will never learn. She untied the yellow bandana from around her head, allowing her beautiful black hair to tumble down. She stretched. She yawned. She couldn't care less about my condition. Ms. Tulkek was very dark. She was a Chiricahua Apache Indian, and she came from the reservation near Madeline. She knew much about the spirit world and natural healing methods, however, rarely did she tell me the spirit ways her parents and grandparents had taught her. Indifferently, Juanita extracted a hypodermic syringe from her purse and broke open the protective seal. She unrolled my left sleeve, swabbed my bicep with alcohol, and then inserted the long needle into my flesh. This is ARD, she said. This will counteract the effects of Arctic Tundra. I looked at the weird serum inside the syringe. The fluid was orange, iridescent, with green fungus floating through the fluid. I grimaced as Juanita injected the medicine into my bloodstream and wondered if the ARD was worse than the Arctic Tundra I had taken. Quickly, Juanita emptied the hypodermic, extracted the needle, and washed the needle's entry point into my skin with alcohol. She broke the syringe into four pieces, threw away the remains, and gave me another to use later. Inject yourself in two hours, she instructed. You'll be fine then. I put the syringe away, slowly got to my feet, and Juanita helped me to her car. Once I was in, Juanita got in on the driver's side, slammed the door shut, activated the FM radio, and turned the ignition over. The 500 Dresden engine roared to life. The exhaust echoed loudly from the tailpipe. Juanita slammed the razor blue Corvette into drive, kicked down hard on the accelerator. The Corvette spun away from the city park as the wide Dusseldorf tires tore into the street to leave burning rubber behind. We drove down north first, moved fast on the Highway 87, then cut through Madeline traveling at 100. Juanita adjusted the micro-radio to 66.2 FM and listened to Mr. Cronkite the expert newscaster who was also the master of geopolitics. Mr. Cronkite was explaining how Starbase 17 was a complete waste of the taxpayers' money. He said Starbase 17, the American space effort, NASA, combined with the Vietnam War was a massive burden to the country. How could this nation, he asked, squander billions of dollars abroad while poverty, and hunger were allowed to go rampant in American society. 
Congress had its priorities turned upside down and Mr. Cronkite was convinced the United States should be given back to the Indians. Only then would the country do things right. Juanita smiled at the remark. Hear that, Mr. Morton? She asked. The Apaches will rule. The white man will be our servants and peace will reign. I replied, anything to get us out of Indochina. Anything is better than war. Juanita gunned the engine hard, turned off the Zachary Street exit, turned left at the first stop sign, and traveled all the way down Cypress Street. When she reached my house, she let me out, spun the Corvette around, and headed off in the direction of the reservation. Once Juanita was out of sight, I entered my house, closed the door, shot the second syringe of ARD into my bicep, drank a hot cup of strong Ethiopian coffee, and ate a capsule of mild German amphetamine that tasted like honey. I took a very hot shower, followed by a steam bath, and gradually my body rejuvenated. My metabolism stabilized, my kidneys felt better, my heartbeat became strong and the dehydration went away. Soon, I would be ready for my appointment with Steiner, the space alien. It was 1 a.m. We met at downtown corporate headquarters and spoke in the half-darkened boardroom. Steiner and Juanita sat at the polished mahogany conference table while I stood next to a window and kept my back to the alien. Mr. Steiner explained his predicament. My associates, he began, want more. They want a new deal. I asked how the contract was settled months ago. Mr. Steiner replied, Under the provisions of the 1965 Brussels Trade Agreement, any extraterrestrial corporation can renegotiate. Getting to the point, I said, how much? Steiner answered, 12 billion, all in Frankfurt gold. Nothing less will do. I told Steiner that was too much and it would break McCready Aerospace. Steiner refused to bargain and waited for my answer. As I pondered my decision, Steiner tried to pick up on Juanita. He showed her a roughly cut artifact thousands of years old made from fossilized clay. Intricate hieroglyphics were inscribed around the edges. A carving in the center depicted a strange amphibian-like creature sacrificed upon an altar. Two bearded priests stood over the animal with raised daggers. Behind one of the men was a procession of seven slave women gazing up at an alien sky dominated by a strange constellation and eleven moons. Although the relic was ancient and worth a substantial amount of money, Juanita could have cared less. Such relics were scattered over the moon, as well as all over the American Southwest, and were well known to the Apaches. Crossing her shapely legs, Juanita chose to ignore Mr. Steiner. Then it was my turn. Calmly, I told Steiner he was a thief. You want the Frankfurt gold for yourself, I said. You want to double-cross me. Mr. Steiner laughed. Nonsense, he replied. You must remember, Mr. Morton, that trade is a fickle thing. It does not adhere to strict rules. I said, 
I have only one thing for you, and it's not Frank but gold. In one fast motion, I withdrew my 9mm pistol from under my jacket, spun around and let Snyder have it. Four times, straight to the head. The rounds tore open the alien's skull and went through his brain. Blood spattered over his suit. He grunted. His eyes rolled up into his head. He lost his balance and Steiner fell to the carpet, dead. Juanita looked down at Steiner with enormous indifference and said, Another star man bites the dust. She looked at me and warned, I hope Air Force Intelligence doesn't hear about this. I shrugged, I reloaded my weapon, holstered it, and told Juanita not to worry. I told her the janitors would take care of Steiner's body before anyone knew what had happened to him. No one would be the wiser. Juanita threw her hot coffee on Steiner's corpse and took his wallet. Then we both ran out the back door, down an emergency escape ladder, jumped to the sidewalk, and together, we fled into the night. The next day, I met Juanita at the Heidelberg. The place was next to the city park on North 1st Street, and was a reconverted warehouse. Inside, the Heidelberg was filled with a hundred pound bags of opium destined for sale in Germany. Although no one would admit it, the Heidelberg was owned by the Madeline City Council. The council made three million a year from opium trafficking, and the city police were paid off to look the other way. I sat with Juanita at a table on the first floor. We had an early dinner and drank hot coffee mixed with a mild amphetamine. As we ate, Juanita spoke about Vietnam. Rarely did she give her opinion, but when she did, people listened. Juanita believed American troops would withdraw from the war by 1969 or 1970. The enormous cost of the conflict had bankrupted the U.S. economy had it made the dollar worthless. Because the economy was so bad, the corporations were forced to secretly use the German mark. Juanita believed the situation would make Germany the dominant economic power by 1971 or 72. Several banks in New York had already been bought by German corporations, which gave credence to Juanita's theory. After this, Juanita spoke about General Romero, Romero was known to both of us. The man was a four-star U.S. Air Force general who was half insane and fit to be tied. I learned that Romero wanted to renew his acquaintance with me, but was having difficulty doing so. I had done projects for Romero before, and it was obvious he had been impressed with the results. However, my dealings with Romero had been a very long time ago. Juanita had kept track of the general, and she told me what she knew about him. For a long time, Romero had been director of the F-111 fighter program, a program that proved to be a colossal mistake and had cost the taxpayers six billion dollars. The only good thing the F-111 could do was crash into the ground. 200 alone had been lost due to engine failure, and pilots refused to fly the aircraft. Enraged at the poor performance, the Pentagon canceled the program and refused to buy the remaining F-111s on order. Such a worthless plane made Romero into a liability. Romero still had seven million left over and wanted to start new projects with his money. 
Romero would do anything to look good again before the Pentagon, and he wanted me to help. However, Romero was very devious. What he said and what he did were two different things. No way could he be trusted. According to Juanita, Romero was now stationed at McDaniel Air Force Base near Madeline. A secret unit, the 22nd Bombardment Wing was at McDaniel and Romero was the commanding officer. The unit consisted of seven black B-52 bombers, all crammed with highly advanced microcomputer systems. Juanita had heard that just one of the bombers could destroy the entire Western Hemisphere easily. Ironically, some of the technology developed for the 22nd originated from McCready Aerospace, a fact I did not know. Later, arrangements were made. I met him late Sunday night. I was alone when I spoke to Romero. We met in the city park on North 1st Street. With the general was his protege, Shahara. The girl was a wonder child type. She was about 17, half French, half black, beautiful, slender, and tall. She had a 200 IQ, spoke Russian and Algerian Arabic fluently. She was a marksman with the M16 and had finished a course in advanced molecular biology at the University of Michigan. Between what she already knew and what Romero had taught her, Shahara posed a real threat to society. As usual, the girl was keeping her thoughts locked away. She watched every move I made, noticed the way I spoke, and remembered everything I said. For whatever reason, she studied me carefully, and I did not like it. Like Romero, I first came across Shahara a long time ago. Back then, she had been instrumental in the design of the ultra-secret Nemesis complex in Hawaii. The Nemesis was a DNA laboratory meant to create people who were perfect in beauty, mind, body, and health. When the project proved successful, Shahara designed a second and larger Nemesis laboratory far more advanced than the original one. In total, 11 such complexes had been built and more were planned. Because of Nemesis, she had attracted Romero's attention, and since then, the two had become inseparable. Now, I was with both of them. Romero sat at the picnic table with Shahara in his lap. Romero pointed at me, gestured with his burning Honduran cigar, and said, Mr. Morton, I want your AT. I looked at Romero in silence. Romero laughed. Don't play dumb, he said. You're up to your armpits in Arctic Tundra. You had your chemist design a new version of it that's four times as strong. I want it. I told Romero I didn't have any. Shahara replied, Don't lie. The general added, we spoke to Maxwell Corbett, your senior chemist. He told us all about it. If you want, we can talk to the FBI about the new designer drug you forced Mr. Corbett to develop. I swallowed hard. The last thing I wanted was to answer questions from the cops. 
I asked Romero how much he wanted. Romero said, 300 pounds. That's 400 million, I replied, all in German marks. No problem, Romero answered. It's a deal. 400 million. Just like that, I asked. You bet, Romero said. Four mil ain't hard to get. When can I have it? I replied, give me 16 hours. I'll need time. I can't work miracles. Romero shrugged. Good enough. Try for 16. Drop the dope off at Dock 11 at McDaniel. I agreed to the rendezvous point, and then we discussed payment. I told the general to pay McCready Aerospace through its account with the Royal Bank of Canada. The bank would then transfer the money to its Berlin office to avoid any problem with the IRS. Romero shook my hand vigorously. Good to do business with you, Mr. Morton. I knew I could count on you. You'll get your money. Then the meeting was over. We adjourned. Romero and Shahara went off in one direction, and I left in another. Everything was set to go. Later on, I got very high. I went home and dropped three grams of Arctic Tundra. In record time, I went Trans-Siberian. I collapsed to the kitchen floor, I blacked out, and my mind spiraled into the void. My spirit left my body and I flew over rivers of spectacular colors through distant valleys, over cities of light, and past places that did not exist on Earth. Then I came to the frozen cavern, the place where dreams stood still, loneliness reigned, the terrible cold was the only friend, and where the human museum guarded eternity in eerie silence. The sea was strong. I stood on the western shoreline, I turned around, and I looked up at the Egyptian princess. As always, she stood erect, forever encased in her polished crystal prison. Her dark eyes looked upon the distant horizon, and her presence remained unchanged. Then, the thought struck me. It came from her on a wave of undulated hatred for me and my dealings with Romero and Mr. Steiner. Traitor. A dark word invaded me, the word traitor. Thanks to my small part with Romero, I had brought the Earth to Armageddon. I had sold out. I had sold out to the aliens and the general for money. The lust for wealth had proven my downfall. God help me now. The beautiful priestess filled my being with her contempt. You have sold us all into oblivion, came her thought. Now I will wait for you where the dark rivers cross the gates of hell. Then the frozen cavern, the priestess, and all else vanished, and I fell through the black void again. I screamed at the horrifying sound of a nuclear blast reverberating around me, and I heard the screams of dying people calling out my name. I wondered if Romero would meet me in the underworld. I knew the priestess would. It was strange, but the thought comforted me. Much later, I came down from my arctic tundra high. I shot myself up with ARD, ate a heavy meal, and took three tablets of penicillin. Once my thoughts became coherent, I read a letter sent to me by an informant in Washington, D.C. She wrote to tell me about General Romero. 
Brenda discovered that Romero was a disciple to Kali, the Hindu goddess of death, and he had followed her for years. Romero first encountered Kali while still a cadet at the Air Force Academy, and he had been initiated into the movement by Mahir Kasim, a Hindu princess from New Delhi whose family had worshipped Kali for centuries. The Kali movement had existed in India since ancient times, but now the religion ranged over the earth and had splintered into warring factions. The most violent one was the Northern Star Sect, the group Romero was involved with. The sect wanted control of the Western Hemisphere and was using Romero to achieve that goal. After the end of the Second World War, the Northern Star Sect recruited thousands of powerful people into its ranks, including U.S. congressmen and cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. Consequently, the sect was able to exert great political influence, allowing Romero to be promoted quickly to key positions over combat air commands and to gain access to nuclear weapons. Strangely, the relationship between Romero and the Northern Star remained a secret from the Pentagon. The Defense Department never learned about the existence of the Kali movement, nor the terrible philosophy the cult believed in. As such, Romero was given command over the 22nd Bombardment Wing without a question. My informant then drew her conclusion. Bombay, India would be Romero's target. Bombay and its teeming population of 20 million would be wiped out. This was the city Kali made her home, and once the metropolis was obliterated, Romero would rule over the Northern Star Sect, and presumably the Earth as well. The Arctic Tundra I sold Romero would be used to control the air crew. That way, the destruction of Bombay would be carried out without the threat of mutiny. No one told me what the Chiricahua elders had learned about Romero. The Apache Indians, Juanita included, had run away from the reservation. The other Apache clans living in Arizona had also fled. They ran to the mountains of central Mexico to pray, fast, and perform their ancient ceremonies to ask forgiveness from the sacred earth. The Apache already knew about Romero and his lover, Kali. The Indians understood the significance of the 22nd Bombardment Squadron and the Arctic Tundra sent to Romero by me. The Apaches understood all of this and they ran for their lives. But no one could hide from the white man's weapons. No one was safe. Romero came to my house with Shahara and two other women who worked for the city. We all talked for a while, we partied, we drank, we shot up, and soon the party came to a drunken orgy. The neighbors came over and joined in. The women took turns with General Romero, and we all got high on Arctic Tundra. Eventually, I crawled out into my backyard and fell unconscious behind the tool shed. Hours passed. Two days went by. When I awoke, I was very far from home and at an altitude of 80,000 feet. Slowly, I opened my eyes and my vision focused. I heard the sounds of turbines. I heard the voice of a flight computer. I was aboard a B-52, 
one that belonged to the 22nd Bombardment Wing, commanded by Romero. The sick feeling I had from the Arctic Tundra dissipated quickly. Someone had injected me with ARD. The needle wound in my bicep confirmed the fact. Sitting in the cockpit, I saw before me an array of complex flight instruments. All of them were unfamiliar and beyond the range of human avionics. Over several miniature dials were small triangles, one imposed over another or situated side by side. The triangles formed an alien language used by Mr. Steiner's race. Although this was an Air Force bomber, the technology aboard this aircraft was extraterrestrial. I looked down and saw that I was wearing a heavy flight suit made from a strange green material. A ponderous blue survival kit was tied to one leg, and thick belts strapped me into the flight seat. I turned and looked at General Romero. He was next to me in the co-pilot's seat. Romero's attention was absorbed with a handheld calculator that fed complex formulas into the flight computer through a conduit. With great dexterity, Romero punched intricate series of numbers into the wafer-thin machine for some mysterious purpose. The calculator responded to Romero's commands with strange digital sounds that I had never heard before. I shifted my gaze to Romero's uniform. Like me, the General wore a heavy green flight suit woven from the same weird fabric as mine. The lower part of his face was hidden by a hideous, insect-like oxygen mask that emitted a wheezing noise whenever Romero inhaled. The General glanced over at me, gave a thumbs-up sign, and returned his attention to the small calculator. Through the cockpit window lay the Arabian Sea. Eastern was India, and Bombay. The B-52 dropped altitude, changed course, then accelerated speed. The blue interior lights cast weird shadows across the instruments as Romero punched in the final coordinates for Ground Zero. Situated behind the cockpit was the navigator's compartment, and there, I saw the flight officers. They were both dead. They sat in tandem, both staring into space with lifeless eyes, their skin pale, blood running from the corner of one's mouth, and they appear to have been dead close to four hours. The two crew members sat in front of a complex computer console that activated all onboard weapon systems carried by the aircraft. In neat rows across the control panel, red-colored switches had been placed in the on position. In the lower left-hand corner of the radar screen, a blue toggle switch had been pulled into the slot-marked terminal detonation sequence. Romero said to me, This is it, Morton. Do or die, Bombay has got to go. He gestured back to the dead flight officers and told me, Arctic Tundra, did him in. Couldn't handle it. Bad miscalculation, but don't worry, there's plenty more where they came from. Romero laughed and pointed to the control panel. Your company produces amazing things, Mr. Morton. This bomber is packed with your machinery. Then he added, Mr. Steiner's as well. I looked back again past the two dead flight officers and down into the recesses of the aircraft. The long twin doors to the weapons compartment swung open and locked into place. The blast of air accompanied by the roar of turbines rushed into the plane 
salt spray hit my face. Inside the weapons compartment, I counted 11 nuclear-armed cruise missiles with each one slung tightly next to the other to conserve space. One by one, the missiles quietly fell away, dropped into the sea, sank to the prescribed depth of 30 feet, and then shot away into their own power. In moments, all 11 missiles were far ahead of the B-52. I watched as the weapons broke the ocean's surface, shot upward, and in perfect formation flew toward Bombay. Inside the bomber, the cockpit window changed over into a blue screen. The word Bombay appeared, vanished, and was replaced by a detailed map of the city marked off in military grid coordinates. In high resolution, the map became three-dimensional. Shadows were added, and the map showed every building, shop, alleyway, and street in the city's western quadrant. The computer washed the image in color to make the map appear like a motion picture. People and sound were added to heighten the realistic effect. A centuries-old hidden temple was outlined in blue. A woman's voice announced, This is Ground Zero. Destruction of selected target city will transpire in time minus 19 seconds. I imagine the rest of the 22nd bombardment wind taking off from McDaniel Air Force Base with orders to annihilate the rest of India. Acting as if he had read my mind, Romero said proudly, We're in this all the way, Morton. Bombay is only the beginning. Soon all of India will be aflame and me, me, Robert Cromwell Romero, will rule. All will bow to the Northern Star Sect and the Earth will be mine. Romero laughed hard as images of grandeur floated through his twisted mind. But then, he was cut short. The flight computer seized control of the B-52 as Romero got on a terrible scream. The general twisted violently as electricity shot from the control panel into the man's body. Branches of searing heat cut through his flight uniform and incinerated his flesh. Smoke erupted from his body as his skin charred black and his hair erupted into flame. Romero died, his burned corpse slumped into the flight seat, his limbs twitched erratically from exposed nerve endings, and over the intercom system I heard a wicked laugh echo through the aircraft. In its feminine voice, the master computer said, Goodbye, Mr. Morton, and may the frozen cavern forever entomb you. Then I heard seven death bolts locked suddenly unlatch, the metal escape panel fall away from under my feet, and I fell headlong from the B-52. The blast of cold ocean spray hit my face as I somersaulted through the night sky, screaming all the way down. I struck the sea, my flight seat bobbed, turned upside down, and then righted itself again among the rough swirls. I watched as Romero's B-52 in the precise direction the cruisers had gone. I listened to the loud turbines die away as the massive bomber vanished into the distance, and I became a witness to the beginning of the Third World War. Then the nuclear fireball erupted. Like the last shot to the sky, the entire night became day. A horrible thunder shattered the stillness as Bombay India became the surface of the sun. As the cruise missiles found their target, Ground Zero was realized, and the city was blown through the gates of 